Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 491. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. So this week's interview is with Ruth Ferenga. Ruth's a facilitator, executive coach, speaker, and author. She's founder of Conscious Leaders, a consultancy helping ambitious leaders in technology build a calm, collaborative, and productive workplace. In 2019, Ruth started the Conscious Leaders podcast on which she showcases great people leaders, CEOs and founders who really step up for their employees. Her podcast interviews helped inform her new book, Next Level Leadership from Rethink Press. In this conversation with Ruth, we discuss her new book and podcast, What Does It Mean to Be a Conscious Leader? How Unconscious Leaders Can Become Conscious, Showing Emotions at Work, with plenty of great tips and insights on how to become a better leader. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please consider the drop in your rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Ruth Ferenga, how lovely to have you on my show. Um, we met thanks to my friend Zoltan Vass, and we were talking about the future of work. And you let up that you were working on a book. It is now out. Next Level Leadership, Nine Lessons from Conscious Leaders. You're a coach, a consultant, and also a podcast host. So fellow, fellow podcast hosting and author. In your own words, how would you like to describe yourself, Ruth? Oh, good question. My clients told me it was about creating a calm, the work was about creating a calm, collaborative and productive workplace, which I thought are nice words. Um, I usually say something like facilitator and executive coach. I think facilitators are a nice word because it is really what I do. Like, yes, there's content in what I do, but really it's about holding the space for others to do the work between themselves and do their right thinking, do their best thinking. So conscious leadership, um, you write about it, uh, about actually what does it mean, conscious leadership? I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you also say later on that a lot of the things we do are unconscious. So how would you like to articulate or for us conscious leadership? Yeah, I think conscious leadership is people that intentionally step up for others in the way that they run their business or their team. So according to how I define it in the book, the work I do, it's those that are running commercially successful businesses. So they're a CEO or a founder or they're a senior partner if they're in a corporate. Um, But they're also very active and proactive in the way that they support their people. And they do that in quite radical, innovative ways ways usually because they prioritize the happiness and fulfillment of their staff alongside the commercial success of what they're doing so start on the inside with your employees as a a way to be profitable yeah i mean i always say that this work is about three layers so it's about self interrelation and wider culture so self how we manage ourselves our habits our reactivity this type of thing Then beyond that, how we interrelate, how we listen to each other, how we coach each other so that we can get the best thinking out of one another. 
and beyond that, their world wider culture. Like, how do we want it to feel like around here? How do we create a space that's going to be fun or productive or whatever it is the words that we want from our work? How do we intentionally make that happen and not just expect it to work out somehow? So those are the really important like kind of phases, I think, that leaders need to work through. At one point in, in your book, Ruth, Next Level Leadership, you you quote a professor, Paul Dolan, to name him. And you, he, he said, the vast majority of our thinking is driven by our unconscious and the stories we've been telling ourselves. So it really is a theme I wanted to explore, which is how does an unconscious leader become conscious? I mean, at some level, I'm not even conscious of my unconsciousness. You talk about sort of unconscious competence and so on. Mm. How does an unconscious leader become conscious? Well, I think what we're talking about here is awareness. And maybe if I draw from my own experience, so previously I would have said, if you take me back to 12, 13 years, I think I was quite reactive, quite stressed. I was a kind person still, but I, 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 I was like, it's someone who would have like, like minor anger issues, I would say, and a lot of stress in my life. And I wasn't really aware that I was behaving that way. And through a process of my own anxiety, depression, and coming out of that a number of times through a lot of personal and professional development, coaching, my own business, all that mindfulness training, I have slowly become more and more conscious and aware of how I behave and my impact on others. So I think it's it's bringing to the surface things that are maybe maybe less appealing about our personality and making them bringing them into our awareness so that we can work on them. Yeah, I, I personally have had moments where typically it's my wife who says, you know, who has the courage to say, "Hey, Minter, uh, you're not acting nicely." And and it's at those moments I'm like, oh, I didn't I didn't feel it. I didn't see it coming. I wasn't aware. And it, it's sort of like, how do you know about something when you don't know it existed in the first place? So it's yeah. it's about finding this ability to crack through our masks, our ignorance about ourselves, and and making people be comfortable or at least aware of their imperfections how, yeah. how how does one get them to do that i mean as a coach what are the things that trigger the aha moment yeah and I, just to reflect as well that i still think i'm working on this like i always say to clients people i work with like i'm not the finished product it's <laughs> a journey still, yeah exactly it's a journey like we all know i'm still working on my own practices every day to help me with this and I will fall back at times and other times I'll be doing better. In terms of how people go on this journey, I think it can be complex, not necessarily in a difficult way, but it's, it's broad. For me, it's been things like mindfulness training. So I first discovered mindfulness when I lived in Oxford about 12 years ago and I was highly anxious, stressed. And I was quite, I'm quite a science-based person. So when I heard about mindfulness, I'd be like, oh, that's a bit fluffy. But then I heard that Oxford University does a lot of research and they have a whole department for mindfulness. 
And so I was like, mm, okay, if it's good enough for Oxford University, maybe it's good enough for me. <laughs> maybe I can open my mind to this. So I started on what was an eight-week mindfulness-based cognitive therapy course. Now, a lot of people advocate mindfulness. Others say, oh, it's rubbish, doesn't work for me. And I think what people need to know is that if you follow an evidence-based approach, like an eight-week course, an eight-week mindfulness-based cognitive therapy course, or a program that just involves structured practice over a long time, then you will see change. There are very few people who, do, who do, dedicate this and stuff to med meditation and mindful practices and don't see change. So there's the, the mindfulness stuff, which we can go into further if you like, because I've been working on it a long time. Um, and then there's my own coaching experience. So when I went to see my first coach, I think she helped me really wake up to my own values and why I was really struggling in life. And why I'd had such a stressful experience in my last employer and really butted up against a really difficult leader there and how I needed to adapt, kind of meet my values more fully. Um, and beyond that, I've had I've had like four coaches. <laughs> so I am um, dip in and out of coaching for, for extensive periods. And I think it's a really good way for me personally, as a coach for others as well, to better reflect on how I'm acting and check myself and think, mm, is this how I want to be behaving in this moment? Is this where I'm intending to be, I'm purposeful about, or am I kind of deviating and following habits and behaviors, maybe from my childhood or the playground? Like what's going on here? And can I can I wake up to what I might be unintentionally doing? What's interesting, Ruth, is that in the idea the proposition of changing others, you expressed it through yourself. And as a story, that helps people to latch into it. I'm guessing so many people are listening to this and, and are pretty unaware of these moments. But the reality is, for sure, I'm a work in progress. I wrote a book on empathy, and am I empathic all the time? No. And by the way, I don't think you should be empathic all the time because otherwise you may end up doing nothing. But um, well, yeah, it's the problem of the great empaths. But there, there are times when I'm, I certainly feel like I'm, I'm off base. The, the challenge is all the more pressing in larger organizations where I might be a leader, but I'm not the CEO. Uh, I mean, I, when I was working at L'Oreal, I, I ran large teams. I had the big title but I still had um, a layer or two to the CEO. And so I couldn't be responsible for the entire corporate culture. In a lot of the situations or the examples you give, there I had the feeling, and I couldn't, I didn't sort of fact check all this, but that a lot of the companies were smaller companies that had um, even employee ownership or private ownership where your governance options are wider, where I'm in charge of the whole thing. What, what about the notion of mid-level management and mid-level conscious leadership? Is there a possibility for that? And, and, and if, if it's the boss who's not a conscious leader, what kind of openings are there for making to get the leeway? Let's say you have access to the CEO to get them on board as well. Mm -hmm. Well, really good question. I intentionally interview people who have made waves in their company. So often they are, there, there is a range, there is small, medium and corporate 
including PwC, for example, a partner there. And the employee ownership company you mentioned are a corporate there, Riverford, there, a thousand people. But you do see a lot of small to medium sized business founders and CEOs there. And I think to say just briefly, I'd say that this work needs to start at the top or as near to the top as, as humanly possible. Because if you are a middle manager and you're reading all this great stuff and you're unable to influence the top, all this book is going to do is make you realize that maybe you should leave <laughs> or maybe you should try a bit before you leave um, because you're wanting to be in a different environment. And I, I actually wrote, I was writing a blog today on like three characteristics of conscious leaders. So I pull out the first three. And I actually said at the end that I'd really like you to share this with someone who you don't think would usually read something like this. Because I think what I'm most interested in doing this work is reaching the tough people who don't do personal and professional development and actually steamroller a lot of people and cause a lot of destruction in their leadership because they are unconscious, like we were talking about before, and unaware of what they're doing. And they want the commercial success over anything else. And what they haven't realized is that actually this being nice to people, supportive, purposeful, all this stuff is going to help with that. So I'm really keen that people would share something. Maybe it's not the whole book. Maybe it is. Maybe it's a blog like this. Something is a nugget that is about commercial success alongside this really stepping up for people in new and different ways. Because I think you make a really good point. If you are middle management and you're not seeing that at the top, that's challenging. Now, you can have your own impact in your team. You know, just from we talk about loads of things in the book, including great listening, great intention, managing yourself in a way that's supportive to them. And that will have a ripple effect on the layers of management or the one team you support, however senior you are. And you, you know, any person can decide if that is something that they are prepared to tolerate, if they're not seeing good stuff come from the top. And great people can do great grassroots stuff as well. There's no denying that. But it is challenging. And I, I would like to help anyone that is is interested in doing that, because I think that does that is where this real work needs to happen. It needs to help. I'm going to say tough guys. It's not always guys, but often it is. It's traditional masculinity here. So how do we help those people be open to this work? I think it's a really good question for myself. I did a little I would say informal audit of your your podcast where you have maybe 30 or 35 um, episodes. And it seems that compared to what I would characterize as the generalization that most leaders, CEOs are still male, you have a, a larger proportion of female leaders, CEOs. And I can't help but think that the the as one of your points in 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 your book is bringing your whole self to work i i have just you know anecdotally without any scientific research just observed that more often than not uh, a female leader will more often bring her whole self to work including the ability to cry be vulnerable and 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 listen because there's a, also research that shows that women tend to index higher in empathy than males men and so yeah there's this i have this feeling that it's a there's a feminine quality to this ability i would like to have you react to that 
there's a feminine quality to this ability. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, to be honest, I'm not giving them excuses, but I think it is tough out there for guys in some ways, because you talked about like crying, for example. Like, it's tough for a lot of guys to cry full stop, never mind yeah. crying at in home, the work. At home yeah. with your spouse, As with your children. Leader. Yeah, exactly. So, so I think there is, we have a really interesting challenge at the moment in which we expect men to open up and be vulnerable and maybe, you know, cry and all, the, or like be human and relate and listen to all this stuff. But they weren't brought up like that, you know. So, and we're totally generalizing. There's a whole bunch of Gen Z people coming up who who can cry and are really open hearted and and all this. But it's I think it's an interesting challenge that we we also still expect men to be quite tough and you know in the large amount of scenarios expect men to be the main breadwinner not always but this is an interesting challenge so we're saying to men why aren't you taking the paternity leave and why aren't you like really opening up about all this stuff but we still need to do to earn and and there is an interesting balance there that I think is not easy for quite some proportion of, of men right now hey friends this is Jim Knight former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next-door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information. Yeah, you know, I feel like this is 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 kind of a, a large rub within this whole challenge of of being a conscious leader, trying to do good and perform, and and even um, this notion of safe space, uh, which is is really interesting because obviously, just like Jonathan Haidt um, argues, safety is a good thing. I mean, how can safety not be uh, a good thing? However. One, if you go just a little bit too far with it, well, we're not in, we're not causing any danger. And I'm going to give the example of of a race where you you have a race, and if you're just relaxed and it's totally safe, uh, doesn't matter if I win or lose. Well, that doesn't seem like high performance situation, and there is such a thing as good stress. And there's an as a CEO who wrote a piece in Forbes how psychological safety actually works, where he describes having tried to make a safe space at work for everybody to feel diverse opinions are good and all that. But he noted a, a decline in growth and creativity and problem solving. So there's this friction between challenge, difficulty, stress, that sometimes is good, and safety, loving, openness and vulnerability and it's a grisly mix that i see as is very challenging for leaders today yeah i don't think the two have to be like you know mutually exclusive really because i 
you know, I mean, Google's Aristotle research, you right know, the psychological safety research said the key to high-performing teams is psychological safety, which includes two things, emotional awareness and equality in conversational turn-taking. So taking equal time to speak to each other. That is what makes high-performing teams. Now, those, I imagine, and from what I've seen from the great leaders I know, there is also very high expectation there. So just because you're, and you know this, and you say, but you know, just because we're kind, we're supportive, we listen, doesn't mean we're saying, I need you to show up like now, and I need that deadline met. And, and just because I'm vulnerable myself doesn't mean I'm gone mushy, and I don't have high expectations for you. So I, but I think that is an interesting line to tread. Like, how do you show that you have a strong backbone? But also a warm heart. There's a really interesting book, I can't remember it's by actually, that is called something like that about this mix of of strong backbone and warm heart. And that that is possible, I think, with practice, particularly, that we can be demanding, highly demanding of people and kind and a good listener and there for them when there's something going on personally as well as work. And and know maybe when to flux between the modes depending on where they're at and how far we can kind of push them at that time. Yeah. So this um, leads me to the the thought of balance, which you talk about at times in the book, work-life balance. And, uh, you know, obviously the, the newer generations seem to be more plugged into this idea. And yet sometimes for some jobs, you're going to have to work 96 hours this week to get it all done, there's a big emergency. We got a big shareholder meeting or whatever, and and that's the requirement. And and uh, balance be be uh, thrown out, or at least the life side of things. So it it feels like the idea of balance is a very is is a it's a difficult state to achieve. Yeah, and I I think that is what companies have to work at because otherwise people will leave you know we we know that particularly the younger generation but we see across the generations now is that people are more demanding of their employer and because we have skill shortages especially in technology and some of these shortage skills but also in a lot of areas that if you're not offering enough balance and yes maybe people accept long working hours on an ad hoc basis occasional times but even my partner who works in consulting for a big consulting firm, I'm noticing they're changing in terms of hours expectations, how the senior leaders are talking about um, what they expect in terms of um, commitment and work-life balance and all this type of thing. So it, I just think that they have to find that balance. Now, every company culture is different and some cultures will cope with longer working hours, for example, because people like that or it works for them. You get the but big pay, big paycheck at the end of the week. Yeah, and they will get a big yeah, exactly. But I guess it's down to the business to see what their brand is. What is their employer brand? What do they stand for? Is it the nine to five? Is it is it kind of you know work hard, play hard? Like what what is it, and what are they getting? Is it enough back for what they're putting in? Yeah, the 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 notion of purpose that uh, obviously is a lot the how you sign off the book, how I read it anyway. This notion of finding a purpose, and the way I relate to that, Ruth, is that somehow the challenge is not just making alive a, a, a statement written in an annual report or printed in your lobby entrance 
about this is our purpose, making outcome alive. It's actually making it resonate into the population. So if you have an existing organization and it doesn't have a purpose, you want to create one, or your company had a purpose a hundred years ago, <laughs> you know, like insurance companies, they had really interesting, fantastically important purpose, but you don't see that today. So making it come back alive. I, I've long felt that the challenge, especially at the top, is actually there's no real personal involvement in that purpose. It's a, it's a nice thing to do. We've got to save the climate because, gosh, that's terrible. And of course it is. But there's also starvation. There's also inequalities. There, I mean, you could go with a lot. And, and what's your story into that? And the lack of a personal attachment, especially at the top, feels like cotton wool or BS for everybody. Mm. Anyway, even if we're, we're giving 1% of our profits to climate change or whatever. Yeah. How do you react? Yeah, I think, I think what, you're, what it sounds like you're talking about is like weaving purpose into the day-to-day -day lives of those that work there and helping them own it. And I think there are various ways of, of making that happen because what you don't want is to be actually having quite a terrible business that occasionally does nice stuff, like you said, does some offsetting or like, because that's really terrible CSR. You know, first make it nice at home before you go and try good elsewhere. And, and I think the way that businesses can reconnect with their purpose or even establish one that is more, one that resonates more, is by involving their employees in creating it. Now, it's much quicker to sit in around a boardroom and go, right, let's come up with a one-liner for our purpose or our values or whatever. But it might be empty. Like you said, it might be like, what's this, you know, BS that I'm reading? Doesn't doesn't sound right to me. Whereas if you're actually involved in a process, and I know various CEOs that have done this, of even with big companies, of distilling what the top values, behaviors are really, not what you want them to be, but what are they? What do we stand for here? And what do we, that can still have some aspirational element to it and helping them actually create those words so that they like, oh, I can put my name to this and I helped. There's been a really great democratic process here. Now, that's not the fastest way of doing it, but I tell you, it will gain the most motivation from people if they felt they've been involved in, in such a process. Well, like you uh, mentioned at the beginning, Ruth, about the, you know, sometimes maybe you should just leave the company if you're a middle manager and the top isn't on, on board. Having a North Star, having a, an individual, personal North Star, and making that relate into the corporate North Star so that the corporate work you're doing or whatever you're doing in business has a, a flow over into your personal North Star could also be the opening of a flood of departures when people, if they actually do the work on figuring out who they are, their self-awareness and the North Star, say, well, what the hell am I doing here? This has nothing to do with my own personal North Star. It could, or I've seen the opposite though. If you involve people, if you genuinely involve people and you listen to their personal purpose alongside their work purpose and you allow them to see the overlap, which most people will see if if there are good intentions behind creating a great company purpose, and presumably you have good intentions as an employee, then there's usually quite a lot of overlap. Now, of course, there could be some discordance on a you might be on a strategy day, like this is not me, I need to get out of here. But I find if the environment is cultivated in a way that people feel heard, then they 
see how it relates. It's only when the senior leaders, like you said, go off and do it separately that people feel like, I don't even know where I fit in here. You know, what I, I have a flashback just as you're speaking where we, we brought in the advertising agency to work on our purpose. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So like external shiny brand first. Yeah. And some, some advertising agencies do them credit or will go, right, we need to start home. But others will be like, yeah, what's the shiniest version we can stick out? Which is yeah. Like well, I mean, the challenge, just like uh, it, it, a lot of these other companies is as a, as a prospective employee is actually, how do you know what the culture is? Because yeah. pretty much everyone's going to say, oh, it's great. You know, especially the people who are recruiting you. That's their job. They're not going to lie. I mean, they're, they're not, sorry, they're not going to say the truth if it's shit mm. behind the scenes. Mm. And so for an employee, especially young people starting out, it's very difficult to sort of gauge without having had any experience, what is the real culture behind the deck? Right. And often HR or some senior leaders even think it's wonderful. They're like, oh, it's such a great place around here. It's like, yeah, maybe for you, because you're in all the you're in all the big conversations about where the company is going. You're at the top table and you make the rules. So for you, maybe it's nice. But if you're not involving people, you don't have like a more participatory culture, then that may not be the pe- the experience of those further down. And they may not tell you either. They might quietly be just quite discontented and less productive than they could be. Yeah, shut up. I'm not allowed to speak up. Uh, to right. one of your points in the book. Um, you mentioned uh, the idea of everyone having the ability to converse or have their voice heard. I don't know if you recall, but I'm writing a book about conversation and I'm really interested in the notion of conversation. Something that struck me in reading your book was the importance of time. So we got the stress of too much work and not enough time to to train, to listen to everybody moan about their personal lives or whatever it is that might need time. Similarly for conversation, because as the boss to obviously, you know, the well-paid most highest paid person says anything and everyone caves in and agrees, or just because that's the quickest thing I can decide immediately rather than go through this process of listening to everybody. And then, well, it's going to be my idea anyway, but this notion of time, and I was wondering, how do you look at crafting the time to do your mindfulness, or, or at least not just you, Ruth, personally, but when you're talking, coaching individuals in, in enterprise or in business, how do, you, how do you look at crafting the time to do what's necessary? Yeah, I mean, of course, this is a very personal question. For me, I do it per- because I know there is no other choice. If I don't exercise, meditate, et cetera, et cetera, my mental health could start going downhill and I can't support anyone then. So, you know, full stop. That's just, it's a non-negotiable. I mean, my first podcast guest, John Hessler, he is a multimillionaire. He runs four construction companies and he manages to meditate. He also has two kids. He manages to meditate twice a day and he's quite an active dad too. So it, I don't think this is about time, although that's what leaders report. It's about priority. And I think the challenge for leaders is that is mainly around delegation and delegation of responsibility and decision making and getting to the place where you can confidently give away responsibility and decision making so that you actually are doing less doing. What you're doing is facilitating. You are 
listening to people, hearing them moan about this and that, helping them flip their framing on something, helping them figure out how to move forward. You're challenging them on that bad behavior you saw last week, nipping that in the bud. You're checking in with them the week after to see how they feel after that feedback. Um, You're honing your vision and purpose and sharing that with them and hearing what they've got to say to add and all this type of thing. So your role becomes very different. It's less about the doing and more about the facilitating, the thinking, decision, decision making and actions of the others around you, which takes time, right, to get to that point. And that's where I think the, the leader needs to become much more of a coach themselves. And most people don't really understand what coach means. Most people think it means mentor. You know, coach coaching really is about great listening. It's about being grounded. It's about facilitating others thinking that might be very different than yours. And it's about being very present. So I think it points to a different kind of time usage of leaders. Also a very different mindset. When you, in your podcast, which I want to talk to you about next, but um, you talk about uh, your interview with Pip uh, Jamieson. And and it is something I really enjoyed, and I want to contextualize it. She talked about having a zero work agenda in meeting people, so no, no transaction, just hey, listen, what's up, and and talking. And I I interviewed a a rugby player, a professional rugby player called Lee Mears, who played for England for Bath and was a British Lion as well. And and what was remarkable is the different types of leaders when you're in a city club a national level and at the lions level which is the the best if you will of of all the different nations of great britain and um what's the leader look like when you're at that level because pretty much everybody who's got a spot on that team is probably pretty good at that spot and you are pretty good at your spot but what is it that makes you a better leader and and he described how on the lions tour the captain took the time to talk with everybody, had an open door policy where anytime, night or day, you could come in and talk to me about anything. And it just, it just seems like a such a non-productivity version of leadership and, and having these zero work moments where you're just spending time connecting with people is so powerful. Do you have any other examples of people doing that or Anyway, maybe elaborate on your reaction to that. Yeah, I mean, I think this feels to me about trust. So if you're there for people, about their work stuff, about, you know, anything else that's going on in their lives, and I think that creates a bond. And it doesn't mean you have to share a lot, because I think a lot of leaders worry, like, oh my God, everyone's going to start crying in the office and we're going to have like, pan- once Pandora's box is open, we're never going to put it back. You know, I don't think it has to be like you have to drop into their entire therapist mode. But it does mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's loads of examples in the book, but like June Corey, for example, she was, I think she was my second podcast guest. She talked about how at one point there were three of them in the office and they realised like one of them was going through chemotherapy, the other one was had a mortgage they couldn't have, afford and the other had this really disenfranchised child and they all just opened up in this moment and and she's the founder of this company and in that moment when they all shared this stuff and they stood in a circle they just looked at each other and realized how they connected they were to each other in their kind of struggle 
They were both ha- all having, all three of them having really shit time. And they didn't need to solve each other's problems, but they all stood there in like a triumvirate type thing, the three of them. And it was a powerful moment of connection. You use the word connection. It was a moment of shit. This is what it's like being human. And, and she attributes that sort of thing as powerful in the way she leads. I so subscribe to that. I, um, I've done a film on the second world war and, and also talked about how the band of brothers gets together and in a same way as vulnerability about a personal issue is connecting those three people you were talking about being together with a band of guys typically and going through death threatening situations is also a way to quickly bond you together and and for me it's maybe a different way to do it but it's it, it's very personal has to be personal because you're you know your 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 journey to death is a personal journey it's you alone with it and and being able to expose others to your fears and worries about that and maybe your left one loved ones left behind and so on something i had many interviews with with these veterans talking about and you, oh. you you talk about your friend annette johnson and she says i feel trust is at the core of the best relationships at home or work and and so it feels, and this is my strong opinion as well, we need to be able to bring personal shit, the messiness of life into work and yet stay performing and, and you know, doing everything else. Mm. And the two can happen at once. Like the three of them, I know June, who I talked about just now, she's a very demanding, like high paced leader. And she would have had that moment. And then probably like 10 minutes later, she would have been like, right guys, let's go, you know? And and she can toggle like that. And I think that is challenging. And you have to know when to toggle and when it is that you move between different states. But I think I think it's possible to do both. But I don't think it's easy necessarily for the traditional masculine leaders that we talked about earlier. And I think that is where the big work needs to happen and can happen slowly. You don't have to pour out all of your past worst problems you've ever had to your staff but you could share something. Well, maybe your book. (laughs) Yeah, that would be great. (laughs) Um, Send them uh, your book. So um, last question, really, just about your podcast that you began in 2019. Um, You've had some wonderful guests on it. Really, I like the flow of it. I was wondering how you, first of all, just would react about starting your podcast and how the process has been. How did you select your guests? Uh, and maybe select the length and all these other elements that go into the nitty gritties of podcasting. Has it been good for you? Yeah, I normally get recommendations for the podcast guests or I hear about them. Sometimes I see something on LinkedIn where I can see they're really stepping up for their people in more radical ways. And I think, brilliant, I need to hack into this. Um, I started off doing them recording like maybe 50 minutes an hour. Now we record about 45 minutes, edit down to about 30, 35 um, and I, but in that space, I think we get quite deep quite quickly because I really want them to open up. I don't want them to give us the shiny version. I want them to give us, tell us what's great, but also tell us what's been really tough, what's gone wrong, what's been your worst moment, your darkest hole you've been in, in your leadership journey. Explain that to us and explain how you got yourself out. Because I think that really helps people 
connect, like we talked about, that sharing that vulnerability, connect with others and see how they could apply it to, to their lives. Because otherwise we see these CEOs of these like lofty people who are so amazing, but really they're just average human beings. And if we can connect to that, it helps us see how capable we can be too. So in in the desire to get to that deep point, which is also essentially what you're asking for people to do within business, what are some of the tips or lessons learned about getting someone to open up and feel that they can uh, expose themselves in a public environment? I think this has to start with self-development, like mood management, anything to help with someone's well-being. It's very difficult for someone to share if they're afraid of the problem themselves. So if they, if even if you notice someone's stressed and you think that they could be encouraged in any way to support their well-being, that's probably a better thing you could do for them than asking them to share. But if you think they're further on that journey, then I think people who have self-managed quite well can listen better. So great listening involves things like groundedness. It involves uh, curiosity involves a strong intention and belief in the other person and an empathy, which is your specialist subject. So I think that's one way is to connect with other people is just to listen to them because you don't have to dive into spilling your heart out. You can just be more present for them and you will start to connect naturally to how they're feeling. And beyond that, once you've got to a place where you listened well, the relationship's quite strong, you can give them feedback, feedback. So if you're noticing their behavior is poor, then call them out on it privately, quickly, so that they are able to rectify that. Because in that you will build more trust and they might share something about their personal life that's going on that's meaning that they're behaving poorly. Well, who knows? Who knows what they're going to say? But it might be in a moment for you to be honest about one time when you did something badly. Or what. I, don't, I don't know. It has to be the person to decide. But giving difficult feedback is actually a great way of, of connecting with people. Yeah. Especially if they know it's with the right intention. Exactly. Yeah. I, as you opened up our chat, you started with the fact that you're not perfect in, in everything you do. And, and I feel like that is one of the keys as a, as a leader to set the example, of course, with some genuineness and authenticity to expose weakness, not like, well, I'm, you know, I'm really stubborn about getting good performance. All right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, that's my weakness. That's not what gets people into you. I I've recounted a few times how the first time I cried in public was you know I felt totally embarrassed, uh, and at the end of the session, it was a PR launch. The most important person in the room came up to me, and uh, by the hug and and the the look and the comments, said that she felt she didn't feel any less of me. She felt more connected into me as a result. Mm -hmm. And so as opposed to feeling embarrassed, which I did, by the way, I still probably some level do, because um, this is not how I was brought up, like you mentioned. Um, it, it really broke free this idea that, you know, you can also be considered strong, powerful, useful, effective, and wig out like my dance I did on, on, on LinkedIn recently and just, you know, show your whole wobbly weirdo whatever side yeah i mean we've all become too serious haven't we like let's face it we've all become too professional you know and 
I think that has got a bit tired now. I think people were more willing to open up, but I think there we are doing it with some people and then leaving others behind. And there's the other side where people were like over gushy, which I'm not into either. Like right. sort of like, you know, every problem I've ever had. But you know, there is a balance for us to strike there. And I'm wondering, I think this feels like a theme of our, our chat today is how we bring people with us. Yeah. And the balance. Ruth, lovely. So how can anyone follow you, connect with you, track you down, and most importantly, order your book, Next Level Leadership? Yeah, you can get all of that at consciousleaders.org.uk and you'll better see free episodes of the podcast on there as well as yeah information about the book and blogs so help yourself to to content and yeah i'd love to hear what anyone thinks of the book and really what makes it practical for them i think that's really important i will put all of those in the show notes merci beaucoup ruth thank you thanks for having listened to this episode of the minter dialogue podcast if you like the show would like to support me please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash interdial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on minterdial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. Convinced man, 
welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.